You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 181. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Encircled.co. Encircled is a sustainably and ethically made clothing company based out of Canada that specializes in quality clothing styles that you can use in a multitude of ways. To get 10% off of your order, go over to Encircled.co and enter the code LIVELY at checkout. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing about my own experience with Encircled's Chrysalis Cardi. Now let's move on to today's show, you guys. I am now speaking to you in a maybe sort of echoey, but very pretty flat here in Cape Town, South Africa. I am loving it. If you've been following me on Instagram, you've probably seen a bunch of Cape Town ranting and ravings about how much I love it here. It is gorgeous. I did not know what to expect, but here's kind of the backstory of why I'm here. First of all, I like to say that I got to Africa in general because of Ghana and going to go see the Pencils of Promise school that you, through your listening to the show and joining Life with Intention online or buying intention tattoos or whatever you've done to support the lively community because of your support and the donations I've been making in honor of your support of all of this, we have built a three-classroom school wing to the, let me try to say this correctly. I don't always do it right. Doje Peme community in West Ho, which is in Ghana. So it was incredible to go see that and experience it. I was at the ribbon cutting and the opening ceremony. I sat there with the queen mother of the community and we cut the ribbon together and they had me decked out in their fabrics and their jewelry. It was just incredible. You guys can see more about that when we have the vlog ready to go that kind of goes into the whole experience. And it just really, really was by far the most meaningful part of this whole lively adventure that I've been on over the last eight months. And before I went, I knew that I wanted to make my time here on this continent here in Africa longer than just the six days I was going to be with Pencils of Promise. So I decided to initially do what I thought would be a gorilla trek in Rwanda, but lo and behold, I couldn't find anyone to do it with. So I decided to take the woman who bought my house in Ann Arbor's advice. When I saw her in October, she told me that when she found out I was coming to Africa, she said, I had to come to Cape Town. She had stayed in South Africa for a handful of years herself, knew that I would love it. And when she said it was kind of like San Francisco, I was all in. So I booked the ticket and kind of had no idea what to expect before getting here. And just like Lisbon, it was love at first sight. I just really, well, actually, no, it wasn't as quick as Lisbon. And I know a lot of people have asked, do I like it as much as Lisbon? I don't want to go on too long about this. We'll get to the episode soon, but I will say it is definitely my number two spot. And I could even see potentially coming back here for a longer stay this winter. So we'll see if it flows that way. But for now, let's move on to today's podcast. Today, we're chatting with the one and only Jonathan Fields. This is Jonathan's second time on The Lively Show. So you may remember him from, I think he was on season two. And he's also a podcaster himself with a show called Good Life Project, which has incredible guests on there, including people like Brene Brown and many, many more. And he's also the author of several books, including his newest one, How to Live a Good Life. 
Now, in this episode, we're actually going to cover the concept of how to live a good life because it is one of my favorite aha moments that I have had in over the last two and a half years that I've been doing The Lively Show. So when it comes to all of the ideas and all of the interviews and all of the books I have read for the show, this one remains one of the most pivotal principles that really was a huge eye-opener when I discovered it early on in season one. Actually, I discovered it at the end of season one when I was personally at a burnout point. So this whole subject, the subject of this book and where I came to this work myself was because Jonathan did a lot of research to figure out why or how can we thrive in every area of our lives. And there is a simple and very counterintuitive approach that he has, which changes everything. So when I was in that super burned out, bummed out place where nothing was bringing me joy anymore, even though I had the life I always wanted and the career was going so well, the reason it wasn't feeling as good as it should have or could have, or even used to feel before I had that burnout period, this principle that Jonathan shares is where I got back on track. It's how I took the break for season one to season two, and even decided to make seasons in general for the show. So that is what we're going to discuss today. Day, and we're also just going to have amazing conversation overall. So we're going to by far go beyond this core principle to many other aspects, including awareness and personal growth and what that looks like as well. Let's go to the show. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show again today. It's awesome to be hanging out with you. I know. This is our third time together, I think, on recording because you were on my show, then I was on yours, and here you are once again on The Lively Show. Crazy. We just can't get enough of each other. All right, well, let's start. We'll do a quicker overview of your background than we did the last time. But for those that are new to you, tell us how you got to where you are. Yeah. So right now I run a a media and education venture called Good Life Project, where our quest is to inspire, educate, and support people on a mission to live more engaged, vital lives. And what we're really doing is building a global community of like-minded people to reconnect with themselves and with the world and to help each other rise. And kind of reflecting back, Figuring out the seeds of human potential, what does it mean to live a good life, has been the through line through my life as a young entrepreneur, as an artist, as somebody who's launched and built a number of companies now, you know, done everything from painted jean jackets to taught yoga to led retreats around the world. And truly really come full circle with Good Life Project, which has been around for about five years now. You know, we have a podcast and produce video and build courses and events. And I'm also an author and a speaker. But most importantly, the two biggest things is the focus of my life is that I'm a dad and a husband. And that's my everything. So everything that I do vocation-wise is built around my ability to just be as present as possible in the lives of my wife and daughter. Actually, this is going to be a question I'm going to have for you as we get into the buckets. But I quickly kind of I'm curious, is that the most important bucket you have? It's a good question, meaning sort of like my relationship with my family. It's definitely the heartbeat of everything for me. And at the same time, I know that I can't be present. I can't be fully there if I'm not also taking care of myself, if I'm not doing meaningful work in my life, because that, you know, it empties me out and it distracts me. So it's definitely something I hold sacred. You know, it's one of my sacred values and beliefs. And at the same time, I can't focus solely on that. Because if I stop doing all the things that make me okay in the world, then I can't do my best at actually being present and being generous and being compassionate. Oh, well, that's great. Well, that's a perfect segue to the buckets. 
But before we actually get into officially explaining it, because this, as I was telling you before, is one of my favorite subjects or concepts that I've come across, I can say easily in the last three years since I've been doing the show, this bucket concept has been so eye-opening for me and being so useful to helping others too. So how did you actually come across this theory in the first place? So I've been exploring these questions, the big questions. What does it actually mean to live a good life? What matters? What are the big levers? And what's the, you know, all the millions of shiny objects that we chase and, and sort of leave us worse off than we began? And my quest has really been to figure out, like, what are the things that make the biggest difference? And But then there was a second realization that occurred to me, which is that, come on, most of us have known what these things are for the better part of our lives. In fact, we've known what they are for thousands of years. So the question for me became, then why are we still so miserable? Why is there still so much suffering? Why is there still so much anxiety? Why are we not all walking around living astonishingly meaningful, connected, and joyful lives? And what I realized was that it's it's not due to lack of information. My theory is that it's largely about the way that that information is conveyed. So often it's delivered in a way that requires you to buy into this intense system or belief system or faith or path or methodology and you have to read and you know, it, there's complexity and heaviness. And by the time you've like waded through the teachings and passed all the tests and gotten to a place where you're announced to be eligible to receive that, you're kind of like, oh my God, can I just like do something already? And you have no bandwidth left to actually just do the work. So what I wanted to do was say, hey, listen, we're living incredibly busy lives right now. And we can have a conversation about whether that's good or bad. But it's the reality on the ground that we feel like we're maniacally pulled in a million different directions. The last thing that I want to do is add more complexity, add more heaviness. So my quest became, how can I take these ideas and distill them into the simplest possible framework or model so that somebody can hear it once, remember it for life, and then it guides your behavior on a daily basis? So I started playing with all sorts of variations and frameworks and flowcharts and models, and this is over a period of years. And then once I really started to figure out things, you know, I had the good fortune of having a large community and we develop programs and run events and retreats. So I started seeding our community and our programs and our experiences with these ideas to start to test them because I didn't want to just throw an idea out there and say, hey, guys, tell me if it works. If I was going to sit down and actually write a book, which has to stand the test of time, I want to know that what's in it actually works. I want it to be tested already. And I want to know that it's actually practical. It's not something where you hear it and you're like, well, that's really cool. It would work in, you know, fantasy land or a laboratory where I don't live. But the moment it hits re contact with reality, it's just, it doesn't work. It needed to be super simple and practical. And that's where this idea of your life being made up the, of these three simple buckets came out of. It was a matter of just distilling and distilling, distilling, simplifying, 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 and seeing if we could end up with something that was literally almost so deceptively simple you can't believe that it's so effective at guiding you to do things that make a difference in your world. But when you actually start to use it as a tool, it does. So that is a wonderful setup for what this three bucket system or concept actually is. Can you explain the whole thing? What's the juicy goodness? Yep. Super simple. Think of your life as three buckets and we'll call them your vitality bucket, your connection bucket, and your contribution bucket. Now, your vitality bucket is about optimizing your state of mind and body. And I view those as one thing. I don't view it as a state of mind and a state of body because all the research shows now that they are one seamless feedback mechanism. There is no way to optimize one without the other. 
and there's no way to actually take care of yourself. You know, you can't take care of your physical body without also taking care of your psychological and emotional body. So that's one bucket. The connection bucket is all about cultivating deep and meaningful relationships. And that's on multiple levels. And if you think of it as sort of like, you know, a series of concentric circles, you know, the innermost one is self-knowledge, which most of us are actually woefully ignorant about who we are and what actually matters. I mean, this is ties so much into your work on the intention and values. And then we start to ripple out from there. You know, what about an intimate partner? What about close friends? What about family? What about like-minded community with shared beliefs? And then if it matters to you, if it's something that you participate in, the idea that you, you're part of something bigger. And we define that in so many different ways, whether it's a universe, God, nature, the, the field, you know, whatever it may be. So that's your connection bucket. And their contribution bucket is really it's about how you contribute to the world, how you bring your strengths, your gifts, your capabilities and abilities, your values and beliefs, the things that spark you to the world and how that actually interacts with you as well as how it actually gives to the world. This is the place where you feel like you're, there's this word that I really am loving lately, generative, meaning it's almost like there's something channeling through you where you feel like you are creating something. You're doing something profoundly meaningful that's deeply aligned with who you are. We can think of this as work, but a big proviso is it may not necessarily be the thing that you get paid for, and that's actually okay. So those are the three buckets. So then the question becomes, well, what's a good life? A good life is really simple. A good life is the practice of doing a little something every day to fill those buckets in the quest to try and sort of top them off, to make them all as full as possible. And then it's the practice of every day for the rest of your life, doing a little something to keep each one as topped off as you can possibly get them. And the beautiful thing about this is that it's not a place at which you arrive. It's not a thing where you have to say, someday I'll get there. It's literally a daily practice and it can start today. Absolutely. And I love that you have laws about these buckets. Can you explain what they are? Yeah. So three simple laws govern these buckets. One is all the buckets leak. When you're younger, they tend to be shiny and new and they're beautiful and there are no leaks. But as life happens, you know, the buckets have a little wear and tear. We get kicked around a little bit. There's a little bit of denting and, and they start to leak a tiny bit. And that's not good or bad. It just is. But we need to actually own that and say, okay, there's no opportunity where you just get to fill a bucket and you say like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good for life. I'm just going to walk away from it. And that's what we tend to do very often. Very often, you know, if we're going deep into trying to fill our contribution bucket and we're profoundly meaningful work and we just you know devote all of our energy to filling that bucket and we stop filling our vitality bucket or we ignore our connection bucket we can't do that because those buckets are leaking so even if we top them off they will leak and eventually go to empty so we always have to get into the practice of checking in taking a snapshot and seeing how full each one is and knowing that we have to actually go around and it's almost like you're watering these three buckets every day so that's one rule is that the buckets all leak Rule number two is that the height of any one bucket will always be capped by your least full bucket. And this is where it, it gets somewhat counterintuitive for some people. So let's go back to that example of, you know, where I was just saying, okay, you're going deep and you're like all in on, you know, your contribution. You're, you're just focused. Everything you have is being focused on doing your great work in the world and you're doing really well. And then all of a sudden, like, you feel like you get stuck. Like you're working as hard as you can work. You're doing stuff that you actually really love doing, but 
you know that there's this potential out there that you're just, you can't access. You know you're capable of so much more, but you can't figure out. Nothing's happening. You can't get there. So you figure out, oh, I know the problem. I'm working hard, but I'm not working smart. So you get productive and you put, you know, systems to get efficient and all this stuff in place. And, you know, you get a little bit more capability out of that. You get a little bit more access to your fuller potential, but you realize, again, you just like there's a cap. You just can't push through it and you can't figure out what else to do. You can't work harder. You can't work smarter. And the thing that's capping you almost invariably is that in the quest to actually go all in in this contribution bucket, what you've done is you've either let your connection bucket run dry or your vitality bucket run dry or very often both. And the only way to step into, to unlock that fuller potential in the way that you're contributing to the world in your, quote, work is actually to pull back on your work. You know, take a look at your connection bucket and take a look at your vitality bucket and then start doing things to refill those. And as those start to fill again, that cap on your ability to contribute, to step into your full potential, it starts to rise organically on its own. And everything just kind of gets unlocked on its own. So the answer is not to just keep pushing and not to keep working harder and not to keep working smarter at a certain point. It's actually to dial it back a little bit and start to take care of your mindset and your body and your relationships. And that's the thing that unlocks your ability to then turn around and contribute on a level that's closer to your full potential. Amen, 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 amen. So can I tell you two stories about this? Yeah, totally. So I found this work right when I was in one of these troughs, as you were sharing. I literally was pouring all of my energy, time, and contribution, and I was having so much joy. This is in season one of The Lively Show. I was doing all the production myself. I was running the show. This is even before sponsorships. So I was just paying for the show and putting all of this energy into it while running the rest of my classes and courses and everything. And I love this work. This was my dream job, but I had put so much in that my connections and my vitality were so woeful that eventually I sat on the curb in Austin, Texas, and I was living there outside of a coffee shop, miserable. And I was realizing like there's no reason. This is exactly what I've always wanted to do. It took me about 10 years to get there, but I didn't have any joy whatsoever, even for the contributions at that point. And that's when I found this bucket system that you were sharing, and I realized how woefully empty the other two were. So that's story number one. Then story number two is in this last year, so now we're into season three of the show, for the last six months since I last spoke with you on your show, I have been focusing on all of my energy and my focus has been the priority is first, alignment before action. Now, action is kind of in any area of life, but especially action in the contribution bucket. So now I try, and I really have designed my life around this principle that I don't take action, especially in contribution buckets, unless I'm already already in alignment, which to use your framework here is unless the vitality and connection buckets are already filled. If I don't have them, I don't act in the contribution bucket that day until it's set in place, until those buckets are full. And as a result, I've had to take less actions in the contribution bucket, but the results are so leveraged, it's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's the word leverage. You know, the idea is these are the big levers, you know, like these are the ideas and these are the things that actually when you really start to dial them in, you know, it's the return on investment is just super powerful. And sometimes it's counterintuitive, but, you know, it actually works. 
Yeah. And I've even seen it in dating where if I get really fixated on a guy in the connection bucket, I recognize that what I'm really doing is ignoring the vitality and the contribution buckets in greater ways than I could be pouring more into that and taking less pressure on the connection bucket and getting so much more even from that. So it really does work in any of these ways. I know a lot of us might think of the contribution bucket and focus on career because there's so much focus in our society on that, but it does work on the other two as well. Yeah, definitely. It's all seamless. There's, they're all interrelated on so many different ways. Okay, so let's go through how we can fill up the buckets. So let's start with vitality. What are any recommendations you have for people that are realizing that that is the one that they're lowest on? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I, I wrote the book on this stuff, we actually launched what we call, we built a, what I call a snapshot tool where, you know, you go and, and you answer a whole bunch of questions online. It gives you a score that gives you kind of like a quick snapshot in time of where your buckets are, where each of your three buckets are. And what's interesting is that my guess going into this before we start to gather data, because I can see behind the scenes as we now have, you know, like tons of people doing it, what the patterns are. Let me ask you this question, actually. Where do you think the biggest struggle would be across the three buckets, vitality, connection, or contribution? Where do you think it, it would sort of jump out as, you know, just sort of universally the lowest bucket? I'm going to guess it's not contribution because I think at least knowing my audience and your audience being very similar, it's not going to be there. I think it's going to be in connection or vitality. But from what I hear from people in my audience, I would guess it's connection. Yeah. So connection was actually the one that seemed to be doing best. Oh, really? Interesting. And contribution and vitality were the ones that were kind of vying for in need of most love. And in different ways, you know, so for vitality, one of the really big challenges is that we, for the most part, have become really not present in our lives anymore, you know, and this was one of the biggest things that we saw as we're starting to see what's happening behind the scenes as we're looking at the patterns that are forming between people is that we very often live these really reactive lives where we wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is check. And then the next thing we do is check. And then the next thing we do is check. And what are we checking? It's like we're checking snapshot, meaning what other people think is important for us to see. We're checking email, meaning what other people think is important for us to read and do. We check text, meaning what other people demanding our attention immediately. You know, we check all these different things, which is basically you open your eyes and you're filling your day with other people's agendas. And then your goal becomes no longer, I want to be intentional and craft my life like an artisan. But your day becomes, dear God, please let me fall not too far behind before my eyes close tonight. Actually, here's a question on that. So when you said the text message, I was just thinking, could that be considered connection, though? It could be. So each one of these things can be used for good or for evil. <laughs> okay. You know, it's just a tool. It's the way that we do it. You know, it's this impulse that's, that's at this point part addiction, part beat, just part habit, part ritual, and part need for intermittent reinforcement where we just habitually do these things, where we surrender a sense of intention and agency to being mindless and reactive. And what I found is that when you do that, I mean, this affects all of your buckets, but it really affects your vitality bucket because A, you no longer have time to do any of the things that would need to do to take care of yourself. And B, the effect on your state of mind is somewhat devastating. You feel like every day you're in a state of persistent anxiety that, you know, there's like this existential angst and you can't ever do anything that matters to you. You probably don't know what matters to you. And you're living from behind. Like you can never forget about getting ahead. 
you can't even get caught up. It makes you depressed. It makes you anxious. It makes you fitful. It creates feelings of frustration and futility. And that's devastating because when you feel that from a state of mind standpoint, not only is it just you know emotionally rough and raw, but that's going to trickle out into your physical body invariably. And it's very likely going to manifest in somatic symptoms ranging from pain to illness to just like lack of physical ability. So it's this really kind of devastating thing, you know? So one of the, what I've seen is what I call really the good life meta skill. It's kind of lumped in when I write about it as the, the very first thing I talk about under vitality. And that's partly because I just wanted it to come first. But the real meta skill for me is cultivating awareness. Cultivating awareness because that's the thing that you need to flip the switch from being reactive to being intentional. You know, how can you know whether you're being one or the other unless you actually have the ability to hit pause and notice what's going on, notice what's not going on, notice whether, you know, this is something that matters to you or really has no bearing on your life. It's just something that, you know, is, is a checklist. And then actually choose to say no to it if it's not something which is meaningful to you and create the space to say yes to the stuff which is. So for me, developing an awareness practice is, is the good life meta skill because that's what allows you to be intentional. And being intentional is one of the really, really big sort of coherent ideas in living a good life. It's sort of like part of the superstructure of a good life is a sense of agency. Can I just tell you how happy I am that you said that instead of what I thought you might have said? Can I just tell you how much I've been running recently and thinking after my Eckhart Tolle retreat that I just went on and recognizing that I was thinking about what does personal growth mean to me now? And I've been doing this work for very deliberately and very like actively in my career for 12 years now. And I've actually realized as I was on the run, I was like, my personal growth practice now is all about presence and awareness. That's it. Like I actually realized I used to do all the 10 steps to whatever that you can hear about on so many different shows or people out there in the online business space right now, personal growth space. But if you really go through all of that, you eventually get to what you're saying, which is your thoughts and your awareness of what is important and what is not at a deeper level than any of the checklists can provide. So I'm just so, so glad that you said that. Thank you. Yeah, that's it's funny because you know people might not look at that as a really important vitality building practice, but but it is. I mean, because how can you understand how you feel or how you don't feel? What fills you up? What empties you out? How to take care of your body, whether it feels good or bad in response to anything, until you actually touch down in your own life. So often we're not, you know, we're just we're dissociated from the moment. I know. And I think that what's interesting is looking at my own journey with this, if I was listening to this six years ago, so earlier in my journey, I would think that we're just saying lip service to something that is really obvious and they'd already have a handle on. It was only in six years of wisdom through this journey to recognize that the me that would have thought that before had truly no idea of what awareness truly is. And that only through a lot more work did I actually realize how much there is there, more than what it sounds like. Yeah, so agree. And it's kind of interesting. I have this mixed feeling about the word mindfulness becoming such a huge buzzword these days. You know, like on the one hand, everybody's talking about it and looking at it. And on the other hand, when something becomes a buzzword, sometimes I wonder whether more people start to just roll their eyes at it. Like authenticity right now or passion. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And say, well, what you know, what's beneath the surface here, and why has this actually been a practice for for so many years and so many spiritual traditions? And also, you know, it's interesting too that you know, cultivating practices like mindfulness. A lot of times, I think people stop at the practice itself and don't realize that. Sure, there's the practice of mindfulness meditation, which is a part of my daily life. I start every day with that, and mindfulness really happens not when you sit down to meditate, but when you stand up to live. It's a lens through which you interact with the world. It's every interaction that you have with every person, every moment, every opportunity. It's and it comes from this place of being mindful or mindless. So it's not just a practice. This is a way to live. You know what's so interesting is, A, first of all, amen to that as well. That was Eckhart's big message in the retreat. So for those listening, they can listen to the Eckhart Takeaways episode if they want to hear. He focused on that for stillness. For First of all, it was like, yeah, mindfulness and stillness and then mindfulness and action or hurrying slowly, as the Zen phrase would be. And also at the retreat, I learned that there is the final stage of the Buddha. Have you seen the phases of the Buddha, like the sitting statues, and then eventually he sits in a chair in the future? Yeah. Okay. So apparently this is something Kim Ang, uh, Eckhart's partner, shared at the retreat, that there is a future Buddha. So you see many different Buddha statues. Some of them are him lying, some are seated, and some look with different hand positions. But the future Buddha, the Buddha that's to come, the back to the future Buddha, if you will, is sitting in a Western chair. So the idea is that you are bringing this awareness, not just on the cushion, but into everyday life, exactly what you just said. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Buddhism also is that, you know, from the very beginning, there was a monastic path and a householder path. It was like, hey, listen, if you want to devote yourself to living in a monastery and being a monk and just deepening into contemplation and study, that's awesome. Here's how to do it. And if you want to live out in the world and interact with others and be of service to others and live every day in you know public society, you can still do it. And here's the path that works for you. So I love the honoring of the fact that you know these ideas weren't meant to just be things that were kept to a precious few who were living this deeply monastic life, but it was also they were intended to help guide people in daily life living out in the world. And one of the things I've been fascinated by lately is language more and more has become so powerful because the words we choose create the thoughts and then then the thoughts create the beliefs. So then we see the world with those lenses. And the term mindful, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I actually think we usually say mindless versus mindful. I think they were using them inversely. Like, I don't think we're using them right. Because I think when you think about the mind being full, it's full of the ego, it's full of thoughts, it's full of all of the stuff that's typically running most of our lives. And I feel like the mind less is creating the space for the intuition to speak through us or for source to speak through us. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's funny. Do you know who actually created the term mindful? No, I don't. So it's Ellen Langer, who's this legendary researcher. And she's done some fascinating, fascinating experiments over decades. But when I think of the term mindful, I don't think of it as so much, you know, as mindful with two L's, you know, mindful with one L is sort of like the classical sort of social grace version of it, which is, you know, oh, be mindful of the way that you do this, which means translates more literally to pay attention, you know, mindful with two L's. It's like, yeah, you're filling it up with stuff, but mindful with one L. I think more classically to me, at least the way I've experienced it is really it's pay attention to the way that you do things because it matters. But it's interesting. There's a play, actually, with some of the merch that we've created for camp and for other things like that. I actually took the word grateful, and I split it into the word great, G-R-E-A-T, and then the word full. And then we kind of like created a little fun wordplay around that. 
and um, you know, because be grateful, but also you know, be great, do your great work, and fill yourself up. Yeah, fill these buckets. So actually, let's move on to the connection bucket. How can we fill up the connection bucket in a greater way? Yeah. So think about this, and and we talked about the fact that this is about cultivating meaningful relationships, and those generally operate on a couple different levels. But let's talk about like the meta concepts here. The same we were talking about awareness. We're talking about love, belonging, and a sense of community. Now, most of us think about love, and we think about romantic love, about passionate love. You know, it's the lover, and that's what love is about. And in fact, there are four different loves. There is that love. There's the romantic love, which is important and beautiful. There's also what's known as companionate love, which we could call friendship love. You know, these are the friends who you absolutely love and adore, and that's a type of love. There's compassionate love, which is the love that you feel for somebody else where you feel like you are them and they are you. And you may experience their emotions as your own on some level, and you want to be of service to them. It's, it, that, that's the love that generates feelings of altruism and the desire to help. And then there's the fourth type of love, which researchers call attachment. And that's really, it's this feeling that you get when you've got a long-term relationship with someone over time, and there's just this deep, deep sense of connection that exists between you. And what's fascinating is researchers have looked at this and seen that the attachment love can often be so strong that couples who've been together for decades and then end up in a, a vicious divorce, wanting nothing to do with each other, it's not unusual for them to actually end up staying in physical proximity, not moving too far away from each other. And part of that may be still there's this just the, there's a sense of, of still wanting to be physically near that other person because there's this deep-seated sense of attachment. So the interesting thing here is that we don't have to have all four to be okay to fill our connection buckets. And we tend to only focus on one, which is romantic love. So if you know that these are four powerful types of relationships that generate different types of love needs, that satisfy these different types of love needs, then you can kind of take a quick inventory and say, huh, like, do I have people in my life that satisfy each of these roles? And are they in fact the same person or are they different people? And also give yourself permission to know that it can be different people who satisfy each one of these needs. Sometimes we try and force one person to be all forms of love. And that can actually be pretty devastating for our ability to both create a, a meaningful, sustained relationship and fill our connection buckets. But I don't want to stop there because the other thing I mentioned is belonging. And belonging is something I've been obsessing over for a number of years now. It's why we build, we have a fierce commitment to community with Good Life Project rather than just producing media and programs. You know, we are first and foremost a global intentional community that is out in the world, you know, like investing in helping each other rise. And what we know about belonging is that we actually have a psychological and physiological need to belong. We have to belong. When we belong, everything gets better in everything from our health to our state of mind, to our ability to work, to our creative and emotional and cognitive potential. And when we don't feel a sense of belonging, which tends towards isolation is sort of the opposite of that, everything craters, you know, and we know this to be true. But for some reason, we don't focus on really all that much energy on, quote, finding our people in life. We just kind of assume that, you know, we'll stumble upon a group or a community or a club or, or somewhere, you know, and, and it, it'll just happen. Rather than saying that this is actually a profound and necessary psychological and physiological need and elevating it to the level of, I'm going to make this an intentional quest 
to either find where people like me already gather, or if I can't find that, I'm going to understand what it takes to do it myself and gather them. I'm going to understand the qualities of belonging that need to be present and then create that in my own life. And these days, there's what I consider to be a belonging crisis. We're walking around because so many of the places we used to find it are either not providing it anymore or they don't exist anymore. We used to find a sense of belonging in work. There was a time where you know there was a real sense of community. That doesn't exist in most work environments anymore. We used to find it in faith, but many faith-based organizations and traditions are actually, people are fleeing them, even though they consider themselves spiritual, and they're fleeing not just the teachings, but the community, even though that's not necessarily their intention. Local leagues, local clubs, the places where we used to gather locally face-to-face, very often those don't exist anymore or people are fleeing them. So it's up to us to actually go out and find the people who satisfy those needs. And so that's part of the reason why we create Community with Good Life Project. And I would love to see people paying more attention to that. Yeah, actually, I have two thoughts on the love aspect. I remember Lewis Howe said something really powerful to me after we did his interview. After we recorded, we talked for a while after, and he was sharing, he was single at the time, and that he had someone share with him that instead of looking for love in a specific partnership, he was working on being love in the world which I thought was such a powerful thing for anyone that's single. And I've actually kept that in mind myself as I've been single traveling the world literally is to instead of looking for all of those types of love in one person, as you said, to focus on everyone that I'm interacting with being that support for me. So if I, for example, wanted a boyfriend that I would drive in the car with, the person that's the Uber driver driving me in Portugal in that moment is my boyfriend, if you will, in providing that companionship for me in that Time. So that's been a really interesting way of looking at the love aspect. And then in terms of the community and belonging, it's really interesting. I'm only six months into this, but I've actually been kind of taken away from all of that type of community. And I haven't felt the lacking yet. But every few months, I have been doing these retreats where I go spend time with people and focus on awareness in some way. And those moments, those weeks at a time with those people that I may never see again, maybe I just make a few connections that are deep enough to continue after the retreat itself happens, are the ones I'll keep touch with. But maybe I'm finding my community in little spurts rather than a consistent ongoing basis. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I love that. I love what Lewis had to share also. And I've seen that shift in him over the years. He's you know an old friend of mine. And, and I love the way that you're sort of experimenting with that as you travel. The idea of belonging also... My sense is that you actually have a lot of what you need on two levels. One, in the world of travelers, even though there may be people who are sort of crisscrossing all over the place, there's a shared ethos, there's a shared vision, there's a shared set of values and beliefs that kind of very often goes with the world of travelers, where there's like a nod and a wink where you're like, oh, you're one of me. So if you find somebody in a little town on the Esplanade or or at a hostel or an Airbnb somewhere, and you kind of like, you realize, oh, you're on your that path too, there's a sense of knowing and a sense of fellowship. And and it doesn't have to be formalized as, you know, like we've all signed up and pledged allegiance to this community, but you can actually still feel that. So that's one thing I think is interesting. And the other thing that you shared is that you are in, you're a seeker. You know, you're somebody who is seeking knowledge about the big questions in life. And you keep returning to communities that are seeking along with you and in similar ways from similar teachers 
in similar containers with similar safety and a similar ethos. And even though you know, you're not going to weekly meetings or something like that, it doesn't mean that you're not a part of that community, even if the people sort of move in and out. It's sort of the bigger ethos and the container that makes you feel like, yeah, they've got me. Yeah, you're right. And also, I have the audience listening that I get to take along with me on this journey that are here with me. And I have my team that I communicate with throughout. So I guess those things also kind of bring some community in. But I just focus whenever I feel a little lonely on it for anyone that might be in the same place or in a similar situation. I try to focus on being in the community of the world. So I have friends in Amsterdam now and Portugal and London. And you know, they're, they don't know each other. They probably never will. But I have this community that is the world now. And so I'm no longer focused on one specific location to provide that for me. You're kind of like the retreats that I go to. You're creating that community so the people from all over the world can go and meet and connect in that way. So that's wonderful. Yeah, no, we do. And the reason we do, you know, we have an annual gathering camp, DLP, where we take over a kid's sleepaway camp for four days every year. And we have close to 400 people who get on planes, trains, and automobiles from the other side of the planet, which always blows our minds. And the reason they do it is because this is the one time of year where they can be together, living communally with people who are there like, they get me. This is safe. We see the world the same way. We're learning together. We're playing together. I can't get enough of these people. And the really amazing discovery that we've made is that when people do that once in real life, and then we create from that point, we also have you know private online groups where they can continue the conversation from that point forward, there are these amazing relationships that sustain over the year, even though they may only see themselves actually in person and get to hug and hang out once a year. Yeah, I totally find that with the conferences I've gone to. I think the hardest thing is for the person that's never gone and never invested the money, that is the hardest hurdle is them getting over the fear of the commitment or the finances. Once they've done it, I think that your perspective simply shifts because you know more than you did before. But for those that might be in a financial situation where they can't travel somewhere and they're feeling that lack of like-minded community, do you have any suggestions for people? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the online world is a great way to, to start to find people who are like-minded or who share the world and to start conversations that can be really great. And it can go pretty far. You know, you can start, you know, obviously the world is on Facebook these days, whatever other way feels right to you. And then see if you can find them locally. You know, there are so many places where you may not have even realized that any of these things exist locally and they're not big investments. So, you know, think about this, you know, you're looking for something where there's a sense of safety, like I can show up and just be me. You're looking for shared values and beliefs. You know, you're looking for sort of a well-defined ethos. This is how we see the world. And then it's not unusual for it all to be built around on some level shared activities. You know, and that was like the classic bowling league or the classic or, you know, or quilter circle or all these different things. Book clubs, you know, you probably don't have to get on trains, planes and airplanes to, to go and find this. Almost guaranteed. You know, there's something local going on, or if it's not, and you understand that these are important things to create, start it yourself. And you probably don't have to spend any money or very minimal. You know, look on websites like meetup.com. And there are amazing volumes of people gathering around literally every possible interest or belief system in the world. And you may be able to find those people. And if you can't, think, huh, maybe as an experiment, let me just sort of put something on the calendar. We'll meet in a park one day and I'll just say, this is what it's about. Put it up on meetup or put up some local posters or, you know, like 
tear off flyers, whatever it may be, and see who shows up, you know, do it in a safe place. So I think you can get creative and find a lot of what you need locally without having to travel. And then if you want to mix travel into it, just because it's, you know, it's a fun part of the uh, experience and then go for it. But yeah, I don't think there's like a mandatory thing that says you have to spend money to find community. Yeah. And actually, I also remember, oh my gosh, this is perfect to say with you because Chris Carter, who's on GLP, came on the show and shared about when he created his meditation circle or community within his own company. So back in the day when he was still working for the company he was working for, he created this program for meditation across the company, which I'm sure created a kind of microcosm community within the corporation. Do you think that's what happened? Yeah, I'm sure it has. I mean, even with, so I use a app as a meditation timer for my practice every morning. Insight timer? Exactly. And I don't use this extra functionality on the app, but I know a lot of people do. There's, there's a whole community built into that app where when I like, you know, I sit and my 25 minutes come up and, you know, I have my three little bells and it says you're done and I hit done. And the screen that pops up after that is you've just finished meditating with, you know, 6,322 people and it shows you their faces and you're like, wow. And then you'll get all these messages from people that say, thank you for meditating with me. You know, I've always sort of kept to myself with that part of it, but I know every once in a while I'll wander over there and I'll see there are all these groups, you know, built around particular topics and teachers and ideas and people. So there are some people who are really interactive just around the meditative life, literally through conversations just inside the app. That's a great one for anyone that hasn't tried it yet. Insight Timer is a wonderful app. If you have a kind of format that you're looking for just a little bit of guidance and timing wise, and actually don't they have downloadable guided audios too? They do. Yeah, they have a a ton of free guided ones now also. Yeah, I haven't listened to those. I've just been doing my loving kindness one every day on my own, but it's good to know that there are guided ones for those who want to get started there. I think guided meditation is such a great way to get started in meditation. Okay, so now let's move on. Contribution. What are we doing for contribution buckets? Yeah, so contribution, most of us, the easiest way to think about this is it's it's our great work. It's the work that we do in the world. And like I said before, one really important distinction to make right up front is this may be your, quote, job, the thing that you get paid for, you know, the primary source of earning your living, or it may not be. You know, I have friends who feel like their work on the planet, their biggest source of contribution is their role as a parent that's not something they're, they're going to ever, ever get a paycheck for, yet they feel like that's their great work. That's where they're most intentional. That's where their contribution to their family, to the people they love, and to the world is the greatest. So it can be. You could be a caretaker. You could also be an artist or a writer, but that's not your mainstream gig. But you love doing it. You do the five to nine in on weekends, and that's enough for you, and you feel like it allows you to be fully expressed. So one central idea first is just that You know, it's very likely in some way, shape or form, the thing that you call your work, but it may not be also the thing that you call your living or your job. And that's actually, that's okay. So what we're really talking about here is this is how you bring yourself to the world. This is, this is how, you know, you ask yourself, what sparks me? You know, what do I do that lights me up? What are my strengths? What are the things where when I come from that place, I feel like I'm coming from a place of strength and I'm being fully utilized in the world. What are my sacred beliefs and values? What are my, what I call your, your killer app or, you know, like the things that you're good at. So this might be, you know, an interesting exercise for this is to literally ask people, what do you thank me for? And this was an experiment that I did actually before starting Good Life Project, because I was trying to figure out what do people perceive 
as the thing that I'm, you know, skilled at or gifted at in the world versus what I perceive? And is there a disconnect? I kind of want to know. And I got some really amazing answers. So this is about part one is kind of like, okay, let's do a mini deep dive into who you are and what matters, you know, and identify all of these things. And now let's turn around and say, okay, you use this word alignment. And this is something that's been, you know, part of my vocabulary for years now. Like, how do you align your actions with your essence? Well, well, step one is understand what is your essence. And then once you do that, you know, you start to say, okay, how am I going to actually invest my energy in a way where I'm being profoundly of service to the world and at the same time, I feel lit up. I feel like I'm, I'm doing the work that I'm here to do. And that potential that we talked about earlier in our conversation where instead of feeling like, oh, you know, I just know I have so much more to give. I can feel I have so much more potential, but I can't figure out how to tap it. You feel like you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm there. Like I am stepping fully into what I'm capable of doing. There's nothing that's being left on the table. That's what filling this bucket is really about. But the really big wake-up call for me is that it starts with a deep dive into self-discovery. You know, so it's really hard to wake up and say, I'm going to be intentional and only do things that are really meaningful to me when you have no idea what's meaningful to you or what your strengths are or what lights you up. So this is why when I talk about in the book, the whole first half of that conversation in the contribution bucket is really a series of self-discovery exercises. You know, it starts with something I call the human sparks, identifying the five things that spark you. And then it kind of moves through a series of exercises from there so that then you can turn around and say, okay. Now I have a much better sense for what lights me up, who I am, and what I need to be doing. Now I understand what to say yes and no to. Can you talk about the thinking ripple, not wave effect? Yeah, this is how I wanted to end a lot of the conversation here because it's something which is deeply personal for me. For years, I've kind of gone back and forth between semi-delusions of grandeur of, of building it like a massive organization where I'm managing structure and offices around the world and thousands of employees to have this global impact and build something that changed the world. And then touching down into reality and saying on a day-to-day level, I have zero interest in living the life of that person. You know, my day-to-day, like my, my goal is actually simplicity. I want to, I don't want complexity. Complexity to me is stress and stress is death. So my quest has been, how do I simplify? And simplifying for me, it doesn't mean building big, complex organizations. That's awesome for some people. It's just not my path. The quest for me was, well, how do I scale impact? How do I scale my ability to actually do what I'm here to do? And at the same time, optimize for simplicity and not complexity. And what I realized is that I'd been assuming you have to build all this complexity and structure and employees and systems and processes if you want to actually make a difference. The truth is that's not true at all. You know, if you think about yourself, if you want to be the big wave that crashes on the shore and you want to build this big thing and be the Steve Jobs and go do it, you know, God bless. If that's the way you're wired, rock it out, you know, but here's the good news. If you're not wired to be that person, if you're a little bit quieter, if you like being behind the scenes, if you just want to actually be more of an artisan or a craftsperson and still do something deeply meaningful to you and something that ripples out and makes a difference in the world, you can still do that. You know, you can create stuff by really just focusing profoundly on developing your craft, developing your lens, developing your voice to a point where it shines through everything else. And you put a drop in the pond that is so condensed 
that, you know, it's sort of like, have you ever used food coloring? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, like you get food coloring, it's in this tiny little squeeze bottle, right? And the instructions would be like, okay, so to, you know, like color an entire batch of cupcakes red, put two drops in all the batter. You're like, are you kidding me? Two drops? I mean, that's not going to do anything. And then you put the two drops in, and you're just like, boom, there's this explosion of color. And the ripple is like that. How can you create two drops or one drop that is so stunningly loaded with juice, with color, with energy, with power that it ripples out and it just expands? Because that is equally powerful. It's a different way to do your great work in the world and to really make a difference. And it was actually a conversation on the podcast that a couple of years back with a guy named Milton Glazer, who's the most iconic living designer in the world, who opened me to this because he's somebody who's had a stunning, stunning impact on the world. And at the same time, he lives a pretty simple life. Instead of building a massive agency, he has a tiny design studio in New York where he works four days a week and then escapes up into the country to hang out with his wife for the other three days. And yet he has designed some of the most iconic things that have ever existed. He has been teaching for 40 years. So he's actually taught Many of the designers that have gone out and made huge differences in the world, you know, from industrial design to graphic design to illustrators and artists, and this is his ripple, and yet the impact is profound. And so I wanted to make sure that when people think about you know, wanting to do good work and wanting to matter and make a difference, that they don't feel like they're trapped to, well, if you want to do that, you have to go big and you have to go public and you have to build complexity all around you. I wanted people to know that you can go epic, you can make big things happen, and also build that around doing it on a more simple, on a, a stiller way, by being that condensed drop that goes out and then colors the entire pond. I'm so glad you shared that because in the interview that's going to have aired by the time this one airs, the week beforehand, Adam Braun came on and he is definitely a wave guy. So yeah, totally. he was sharing about that. And I was like, this is wonderful. And I'm not going to you know, obviously contradict him. I just know that everyone has their own sets of values and their own personalities and strengths. So I'm so glad that you're making the case for the ripple where he made the case for the wave. And also, can I share a little and build upon what you shared here with the ripple in two different levels? Yeah, please. Okay. So I went to a day-long event with Abraham Hicks. And in the day, Abraham, or if you look it up, you'll figure out Abraham is Esther and it's a they and it's a weird whole thing. But the idea of what they talked about was the idea of alignment being more powerful than scale so that one person in alignment is far more impactful than millions of people that are not. So trying to get multiple people on perfect alignment is really difficult. So trying to scale alignment is very hard because people have so many different values and intentions and visions for what things should be, which is also, if you see on the grand scale of political systems and parties, why it's so difficult, because so many people want such different things. So they made the case for this ripple, if you will, to not try to go big because there's just confusion and contradiction within it versus alignment. So on the massive scale, they just said it's more powerful to just focus on alignment than numbers of a business. And I've actually focused on that when I have made shifts in my career over the recent months to do solo shows and knowing that some people are going to like it, some weren't. I knew my alignment with my intuition was far more important than whatever the stats reflected, that that was most important to me. And then also, as I figured out, as I shared earlier, this alignment before action, 
it takes me a lot longer to get into full alignment than before when I wasn't focused on it. So I do get less done even on a daily basis. I'm not waving my days. I'm rippling my days. But even still, with that alignment, the effect of those actions, the slower pace included, is still better. Have you found that too? Yeah, completely. And it's been interesting. I was having a conversation with Panash Desai recently. And he said, you get to a place where simply your presence does all of the work for like there's no work that can be that's greater than your presence when you've done the work yourself and it's what i call my beacon theory you know people have asked come to me for years about entrepreneurship and marketing and all this stuff and and we talk about all the strategies and the ideas and the positioning and the language and the copy and all the yada 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 because that stuff all it matters it moves a needle it's important and i'll always say to them like i need to share with you one other thing and this is the key. This is the magic, like the secret unlock key for marketing and for growth in business and careers and whatever it may be, and is 100% out there, woo-woo, and I have no scientific validation for it, but I've seen it happen so many times. I know it to be true. And that is when you go deep enough into yourself that you really understand who you are, and then you do the work to bring yourself to the world in profound alignment or coherence with who that person is, you begin to radiate light and you become a beacon and people are attracted to the light that radiates from beacons and they come and they want to participate in it and they want to know how are you so lit up and they want, if you're building a company, they want to become, they want to be part of that team. They, they want to buy into the mission. And there's no more powerful and effective tool for entrepreneurs to build and grow an organization and to make a difference than doing the work to actually become a beacon. And I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it in so many other people who I've worked with. There's no scientific validation for it. And which is funny because I tend to be a person who really defaults to science if I can find it. I just know it to be true at this point. I have waves of goosebumps. I am loving these interviews I've been having in the more recent weeks because I'm really selective now on the subjects that I want to talk about because I do have this point of view I'm trying to you know, share, which is this alignment before action and what you're just sharing. I think this is the cutting edge. I think this is the leading edge of all of this. It's energy. And when we get our awareness around energy, everything changes in our lives. I love this so much. And actually, I wanted to circle back to a word that kind of goes along with this you shared earlier. I wanted to hear more about generative. Can you go more into that? It's a word that's just kind of really dropping into my world. Not so the word is, although the state is something I've been curious about for a long time. I found that some people just reach this state where, you know, those when you're a kid and there are those sort of toys where it's like a stack of, you know, like circular blocks or blocks with a hole in the middle and they kind of stack jaggedly. And, and if you line them all up, then the holes in the middle all line up and you can just pour something right through the middle or you can put them all on a, on a pole and everything just starts to flow more easily. I kind of feel like that in life. And that's the generative state where you feel almost like you're a conduit where you're, in a certain way, I think you could look at it as this is, this is the state of all of your buckets being completely full. It puts you into this generative state where your mindset is flourishing and alive and, and optimistic and drenched in possibility your physical body feels energized, pain-free, capable. The state of your connections are flourishing, deep, meaningful, supportive, transparent, and honest. And the work you're doing in the world feels like it truly is emanating from the essence of who you are. 
And when all of those things happen, it's sort of like everything falls into perfect alignment and you reach this generative state where you almost feel like there's an energy of possibility that's channeling through you to just create. It's like you're in this state of perpetual, unlimited creative energy and potential. And that's the place where it's super elusive. Yes, it is. You tap in and then it goes away. and You're like, where'd it go? <laughs> yeah, it's like we felt it we, so just enough. So we kind of know that it's there and we kind of know that it does exist. I'm really curious about creating that state. And is it a state that you can actually cultivate and practice your way into living in more consistently? Or is it this thing which is just sort of designed to be a bit more elusive, like being in states of flow or being in the zone where, you know, we're not designed to actually function 100% of the time. We're designed to sort of, you know, ebb and flow in and out of that state because you can't be there all the time. So I'm, I'm curious about it, but I know that it's an incredibly powerful state when you're in it, when you see other people in it. It's something that I'm exploring a lot these days. Yeah. So thinking about the teachers I've been learning from and the thought on that, so I can think of a few different people's answers. One was Kim Eng, uh, as I mentioned, Eckhart's partner. So this could be something you can also use to explain this if you want to. The idea of a bamboo flute that when the pipe is clear, beautiful music comes out as air flows through the pipe. But when we have thoughts or emotions or situations, and really just probably ego stuff that's clogging up the flute, it's like having kidney beans stuck in the the pipe, if you will, so the wind can't get through. And so she led us through this whole kind of experience where we were focusing on presence through movement to shake out the beans, which was really interesting to try to put movement upon, and I know that you have yoga studio for years, so you probably know this so well, but using movement to align with your thoughts to release and let go of the beans that are clogging the pipe so that theoretically you would regain the clear pipe once again. And then as far as like whether or not it always is there, Abraham Hicks has an interesting perspective on that. They always say that it's about contrast and that, you know, you fall out of the flow so that you can find out more what you do want and what you don't want. And then you are okay with that. And then you, because you're okay with the fact that you had that experience of contrast can then go back into flow. But Eckhart, I would even say would probably be like, no, you could just drop it all and you'll just always be generative in the now of every moment of the now. I don't know. Those are some thoughts from people at first I'm thinking. What are your thoughts? I'm open to all of that. <laughs> I mean, to me, I'm, I'm sort of like the perpetual experimenter. I'm open to everybody's ideas. And then I want to actually test it and validate it in my own life so I can understand the visceral experience of it. And then I want to I wanna share and see how other people interact with it. I'm taking an idea and seeing if I can validate it personally. And then trying to actually test to see if it's robust enough to share across a larger number of people. Are you testing it right now? Mm, in my own life only. Having just very minor conversations about it. It's a seed right now. Three years, you're going to be coming on the show and we'll be talking about it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in the planting phases. Okay, so what internal doubts or resistance are you currently going through? You know, I don't know if, the, if you consider this internal doubt or resistance, but so as we're talking, it's, you know, it's, it's a handful of weeks after I have a new book that's out. And one of the things that I noticed is that I made the decision early on that I wasn't going to try and game the list or make hitting the New York Times list the big priority. You know, it would be awesome if it happened. Yay. I very intentionally said, like, I'm playing a long game here. My long game is impact. And there was some stuff that happened behind the scenes that I had zero control over that made it so that we didn't 
uh, hit the list, even though in theory we, we potentially could and should have. And I got lost in that. I lost sight of my my deeper values. That you know, like I did this. You know, I didn't spend all this time years writing a book because I wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author. I did it because I was seeing something that mattered, that I thought would move the needle, that would help in people's lives, and because I write, because I'm a writer, and and I wanted to do something, and I wanted to go out into the world and make a difference, and it is, and it has, and the reception has been stunning and beautiful, and it continues to ripple out and ripple out and ripple out, and I there was a window of time where I lost sight of that, and I had to kind of snap myself out of it and say, dude, just stop. <laughs> you know, you know, it's kind of like you're being an idiot at this point. You know, I, I lost sight of the true metrics of why I'm doing my work. So I, I had to just kind of hit reset and say, okay, something that I, that would have been really cool didn't happen. Doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. But also, it's not the metric that I aspire to measure my life and my work and my contribution by. So it wasn't so much a self-doubt thing, but it was a, it was a stumbling point for me that I had to get honest about and then you know, own the fact that I lost sight of what mattered and then really sort of like deliberately hit reset and say, okay, let's get back to doing this right. I love that you shared that. Do you think that you had, when you realized it, when you woke up to that reality, did you have any struggle or any issues with shame or guilt around that, recognizing that you had fallen out of your values? You know what? I've, um, I'm pretty good with my humanity at this point in my life. (laughs) I just like, I expect myself, I'm like, you know what? I've done my time in shame and blame. And maybe I'll go spin back there at some point, but I'm pretty good at not going there because for the most part, I run my life and I run my days and I run the way that I, that I move through the world as a series of experiments. And, and it's really awesome when you succeed, you know, at something bigger. And at the same time, if my primary metric is, have I learned something and have I grown and, you know, how can I apply that moving forward? And have I, have I made a difference? You know, and if, if you choose a different set of metrics, it's hard to fail entirely because on some level, it's always a success if you keep running experiments and you choose to keep learning from them and extracting whatever data you can from them. Yeah, I mean, the only time I would probably sit there and say, wow, that was messed up or feel a sense of guilt or shame is if I did something that didn't come from a place of right intention. And even if it was like, quote, outwardly successful, if I knew deep down that did not come from right intention, that would bother me. And it has bothered me in the past. And I know that actually, if I get to a point where something fails or something stumbles or I fail or stumble, and it's really, I'm having trouble letting it go. It's almost always not because someone did me wrong or because you know it was a big public blow up or whatever it was. It's because my initial impulse was not right intention. And that's what's bothering me more than anything, because that's not the way that I want to exist in the world. Yes, exactly. So I kind of have wondered a little bit, wondering about conditioning. And obviously, every human's a unique snowflake. So no, no generalizations here are going to be universally true. But one thought I've had was that, and this is just a sidetrack, totally different tangent. I kind of wonder if guys don't have as much, obviously they have some, but I wonder if they don't have as much of that guilt or shame as females in Western society. And I don't know if that's true or not, but at first, I don't know. What is your thought on that? It's interesting because, and I may not be the best person to ask that question because my sense is that the guys that I tend to be friends with and in community with and have been for years, and even the guys that are part of our larger Good Life Project community are probably more 
whether it's deliberate or whether it's just organically in touch with sort of the feminine divine side of themselves. Yeah, yin, yin energy, totally. Yeah, so I don't think they're good representatives for me to look at and judge. Yeah, I was just thinking that too, because I was thinking even telling you this, I'm like, yeah, you're a yin strength male. So I'm like, I wouldn't say that your answer would be even as replicatable across a larger swath of people. So yeah, I was just kind of curious. But when you do have it, here's a question. When you do have that feeling, what do you do to feel okay about yourself again? Because this is something that comes up a lot on the show. And I love getting as much insight here as possible for people. Yeah. So first, I try and actually figure out what happened. You know, I do a little bit of a you know a postmortem. I'm like, okay, what's really going on here? This is where mindfulness practice, I actually think, is really, really effective because it, it lets you really zoom the lens out and almost look down and say, okay, you know, what happened in the life of Jonathan? You know, rather than just sort of like sitting there from the inside looking out saying, I have no clue, man, and, and I don't want to know. I mean, my first thing is really what's really going on here. The moment I feel something like that, I kind of know that there was something that didn't set up right. And, and it's, it's something that I caused. And it's probably because I didn't, you know, my attention wasn't right. And I try and understand why that happened. And then if, if there's a way and a need to make it right, then I'll try and make it right. Sometimes there is, which is really nice and really awesome because it makes you feel good. And if there's somebody who's been involved who like feels in some way, that you know you haven't treated them well, you can write it. Sometimes there's not. You know, sometimes it just is what it is. Like there was just a moment; it's over. And then the goal is, you know, like how can I learn from this? How can I incorporate this into the way that I interact with people in the world to to be a better person and to continue to remind myself to come from this place of right intention and then kind of breathe through it and to the extent possible, let it go. Um, which isn't, you know, isn't always the easiest thing. But I think, again, that's where my daily seated practice is super helpful because the practice, the practice of seated mindfulness meditation is really powerful in a couple of ways. One, it gives you this ability to actually recognize where your attention is and zoom the lens out. Two, it's just really good at helping you de-stress. But the other thing that I think is less intuitive is that the practice is about repeatedly letting go. You know, so it's not a classic mantra-based meditative practice where it's all about focusing. The practice is about allowing and releasing. So you don't try and clear your mind. You just you kind of let it be open. And as things come into it, which they inevitably and very often maniacally at rapid fire do, you gain the ability to more quickly say, oh, uh, how about that? And you kind of say to yourself thinking, and then you just let it go. So it's a process of constantly noticing what your mind is grasping onto noticing it, and then deliberately practicing just letting it go and coming back to your breath. That practice I found immensely helpful because it trains you in being able to more readily do that with stories that you're telling yourself and very often beating yourself up over as well. On personal level, if you're an entrepreneur or you're in business, you know, you're constantly have that voice in your head. And the practice, the mindfulness practice is one of the really powerful elements of it is is the practice of allowing and letting go. And that is incredibly powerful capability to have in life. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Hopefully that'll be useful for anyone that may find themselves struggling with that too when they catch themselves 
in their story and then they want to make amends with it. So often the ego that's the one that's creating the drama in the first place is then the one that's then skewering you on the stick, (laughs) trying to make you feel bad about the fact that you fell off from your values in the first place. So thank you for that. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? Know yourself. Know yourself and exalt being intentional. I think the biggest misses are that we just want to act. You know, we're just like, tell me, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And the thing is, you don't know whether any action that you take is meaningful, is moving you forward or moving you backward, unless you actually, and, and until you actually know on at least the most basic level who you are and what matters to you. And then you can actually start to be, you know, understand what to say yes and no to. So you can't be intentional until you're at least minimally aware. So do the work, start to cultivate a practice to develop a sense of awareness of who you are, a sense of self-knowledge and an ability to drop into the moment. That's the prerequisite to the intentional life, to being able to move from reactive to being intentional, to go from the bridge the gap from being mindless and reactive to being intentional and aware. Yeah, mindful with one L. (laughs) Jonathan, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing this with us. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It's always so much fun hanging out. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show again. If you want to send Jonathan a message, you can do so over on Twitter at Jonathan Fields. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C as in Cape Town Lively. For show notes for this episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Jonathan Fields 2. That's the number two there at the end. And before I share where I'm headed to next, I'd like to talk about today's sponsor, Encircled.co. As you guys know, I've been traveling for the last eight months and I have been using an away carry-on suitcase to house all of my clothes. Really, it is a big challenge, especially as I'm traveling to places like London coming up and here in Africa where it's pretty much summer in the Southern Hemisphere right now. So the, the weather is kind of crazy and me trying to figure out what I should pack and how I'm going to get the most out of the wardrobe that I can fit into this carry-on suitcase has been a challenge. Thankfully, Encircled has come to the rescue. So Encircled has sent me their Chrysalis Cardigan, which is this amazing product, which is very beautifully made. It is sustainable and ethically sourced. And it's just, it feels great. I'll just say to the hand, the quality of it, you can just feel. And it actually is usable for eight different pieces of clothing. So you can create eight different styles that fits easily into my suitcase without taking up much room at all. I can turn it into many dress styles, cardigan styles, and I can even wear it as a scarf. You can check out all the ways you can wear it and all of the other products that they have as well at encircled.co. And like I said before, just know that if you are into the sustainably ethically made stuff, I know that many of our listeners here are into that as well. These are ethically and sustainably produced in Canada, and you can get 10% off of your own Encircled purchase by going over to encircled.co and entering the code LIVELY at checkout. All right, and now for where I'm headed to next, I'm gonna be hanging out here in Cape Town for the rest of the week, and then next week, I'm headed to Boston. I'm leading a panel at a conference in Boston, and then I'm headed off to another part of Europe that I've been many times before. Can you guess what it is? Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. Today.